0: We're gonna have a real good time together We're gonna have a real good time together we are gonna laugh the child together Have a real good time together Na 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 na
1: Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm Evan.
2: I'm Ian. And today we are honored, really, to be joined by, uh, I guess, it, are you considered a label mate if we are both on the same podcast network, right? I, I don't really know what the terminology is here. Uh, I think
3: it, we may have to come up with the terminology. A net, a net, a network
2: mate? net, network, net A net buddy? perhaps um, uh, no, that's
3: something uh,
1: else yeah po- <laughs> so. uh, associate pod, as, pod associate we'll uh that's, we'll
2: get there by the end of it yeah, uh, yeah. but uh uh folks out there you already know uh judging boy the signature voice uh it's craig finn of craig finn solo records and the hold steady thank you so much for joining us craig oh thanks for having me please the pleasure is all ours and we are here to talk about a pretty Pig one, I think, in the Lou Reed canon, uh, one that I think we've been looking forward to for quite a while, and that I personally am very excited to talk about, it's 1982's The Blue Mask. Uh, what, a, what a record. Um, where did you, sort of, uh, we'll, we'll flip the script on you, Craig, because you start your podcast uh, always asking your guests uh, if they have a good memory, uh, I'm going to assume that you do have a good memory, uh, but ask us to tell us about your memories with Lou. I mean, I think Lou Reed, for me, came in at first through,
3: you know, classic rock radio, which would play Walk on the Wild Side and, mm. um, uh, you know, some other things probably, but that was it. And um, I, you know, I think I was definitely aware of Lou Reed as a solo artist, Sweet Jane. Like, the rock and roll animal record seemed like someone's older brother had it. Sure. Um, and I would listen to that, and and I remember getting the greatest hits, like that old Lou Reed greatest hits, which had um, – um, a number of songs you know that we know, Wild Child being one of them, which had, mm. which kind of I think when I look back was a very influential song for me. You know, I was talking to Chuck and his gang's going soup and his wizards. Like, there's a lot, of... I see, I see that <laughs> you know, there's a lot of names and there's a lot of words. And there's you know, he's he's throwing these things around, which I mean, you know, as an older 50 year old rock fan now, I can look back and sort of you know, you, you get 30,000 feet and you see, oh, well, Dylan was doing that too, you know, and, and yeah. So And and so he's kind of doing it in this electrified way. But um, so I was, you know, I was a fan always. And, you know, like a lot of people my age, the Velvet Underground, you know, those records were out of print um, when I became aware of them. And then they kind of came back in print and i mean rem had a lot to do with that championing championing them and um covering some of those songs on the dead letter office record um and so you know i kind of knew the lou reed solo stuff and went back to the um vu stuff and then um new york was was a really big record um in 89 and that was right as right as i was graduating high school and that was something that i listened to a lot and and was you know like profoundly affected by I I don't i had never been to New York at that point until um, at least not as a you know like as a walking around by myself person right um, so I think like it, 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 uh, when I think about um, how much I love that record and then I've lived in New York for the last 23 years kind of feels like <laughs> it, it, it's part of the whole the story
2: Your uh, introduction to the city itself. It's so funny you mentioned REM because when we had uh, Michael Imperioli on the show to talk about the first Velvet's record, he mentioned this literally the same thing. And I'm guessing he's Uh, probably around your uh, neighborhood in terms of the age range, but like early mid 80s, REM acting as the intro to the velvets which was i mean for us and it's it's so alien because like the first time i ever heard lou reed it was singing sunday morning the first song on the velvet underground or nico because i just had that at my fingertips you know as soon as i decided this was someone i wanted to be into but having to kind of backdoor your way into it and start with like in the middle of the solo career and then work your way back to the velvets and then continue with them forward from new york it's just such a Funny, I mean, not funny, it's just, it's different than it is today, you know?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I and mean, there were those, it's like, not to be all Grandpa 80s about it, but there was like, there were those quaint things. I remember like, uh, the other one, not to get off track, but it was the MC5. And I mm. always wanted to hear the MC5, and every time i go to the record store, I'd go to the record store, and you go to M., and you would look, and there would be no MC5 records, and it was like <laughs> that was like something I did for years until I finally until they reissued something. But those Velvet Underground records were hard to find, and there was—I mean, the other thing was like Lou was—he was there was—I uh, mean, I remember him coming to cons in concert, and some of my friends' older brothers count going when I was, you know, maybe in junior high, and then but he had some kind of cultural presence too. I remember. In early MTV era he and the New Sensations record he had that song I Love You Suzanne. Right. And he had a video and um and around that time he became one of the spokespeople for this Honda scooter they had. <laughs> That's right. Um which I think <laughs> Grace Jones did too. And um and I remember you know so he was like like someone you saw on in- on, on, on the commercial and you knew who he was. He had some presence, but he obviously wasn't a super mainstream artist
2: the same, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's very funny to think of like your introduction to Lou Reed being, I love it's, you, Suzanne and the Honda scooter. The Honda scooter. <laughs> this scooter is the guy, yeah. guy who had been doing uh street yeah. hassle and the bells just like five years earlier.
3: Exactly. You know, and that, the other thing about this that, you know, in when I was thinking about coming on and thinking about something that, because uh you know, hearing some of these things out of order, um, I I'd, I'd never really heard when I went to make my own first solo record. Um, I started like to listen to a bunch of solo records of people who had kind of were known for being in a band first. Sure. And um, one of the, the ones I pulled out was 1972, the Lou Reed, the first record. Mm. And it was interesting because so much of that, those songs had been Velvet Underground songs. Mm-hmm. And now they aren't on necessarily on, you know, the, the three the four three or four studio albums, but by that point so much had been reissued and I'd heard so much Velvet Underground that I was familiar with most of these songs as Velvet Underground songs, but then they were kind of re-recorded as Lou Solo songs. And that kind of that really gave me um an insight into something. I, I'm not sure what it was, but it, it it gave me some confidence that you could, that you could do things uh, or you could sort of change songs around to, you know, two different things. Sure. I think
1: that was something we talked about when we first started talking about the Lou solo records was how that record feels like uh, it is kind of like a glimpse into uh, him. I mean, obviously just into him starting out, but you start to see him uh, go through maybe some wobbly first steps, but he goes through it and he does it. And he makes it through that like it may be awkward period, and then he's just on his way. And it's interesting to talk about that now, looking back, because I feel like the record we're going to talk about today is, in my opinion, I, I mean, like, I think it's his first real, mature, full on like mature record that feels like from here on out in his career, he's he, this is a high water mark for his artistry like it feels really like any of that awkwardness has kind of been done away with
3: yeah and you know i was looking back at his discography as we were getting on and you know you said about wobbly like in 1972 he made that solo record but then he made i think transformer that same year right yeah yeah. so it's like what a that's like just like writing dispatches i mean you're putting out two records a year (laughs) like that's that seems like very uh I mean, very uh, privileged, you know, the label is believing with you, in you and obviously the records they're selling on some sort of commercial level right. to, that, you know, they're getting their money back. But still, it's like you you get to, like, release a lot of your thoughts in the world at, yeah. on that schedule. <laughs> and the, the, the record
1: before this one, The Blue Mask, um, before it is is Growing Up in Public, which I think mm-hmm. the title seems to directly reference that in a way that he's looking at the experience he's had Literally doing of just growing up in public uh, with his creative career, uh, just being out in front of everybody, seeing him develop.
3: It's it's such a crazy record. I was thinking about, like, you know, we talk about like he's grow, you know, literally growing up in public, as the record title, and 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 there's missteps and there's you know kind of perceived, mm, you know, he's wading through something. Right. Is there I mean, he, with exception, but this feels like a record where he's saying, I'm, I'm content, I'm happy.
2: Totally. And mm-hmm. I don't,
3: I can't, on one hand, I can't think of an analog. Um, but on the other hand, I was thinking when, you know, in these last few days when I'm listening to a lot, that it also feels like a type of record that people have tried to make. Mm. After yeah. it, although I couldn't necessarily
1: come up with examples. Do you mean an analog um, in his own career after this like another or just with anybody else?
3: Well, I sort of feel like there's this like yeah, I, I mean there's a, there's a point in a in a, an artist's life where you say like I'm not I'm not angry anymore, right? <laughs> I'm not fight, I'm not fighting, you know? And um, you know, I think Elvis Costello probably has a record that where he became, you know, not an angry young man, but mm. I don't know that he he talked quite about um his uh, contentment in, 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 in which isn't a hundred percent of the blue mask,
1: but it it is part of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, it starts that way. If we want to get into the first song, yeah. it's like the, the, the song that I think encompasses that in a very special way, maybe more than any other on his, in his whole discography, really.
2: house exactly a song that's literally about my house uh, maybe marky smith was uh, pulling from this <laughs> my <one>. new house <laughs> his new well, house that one's a little different yeah.
3: well also our house which is uh right. what um <laughs> oh, who, who yeah. was, uh, you know uh i don't even know who is, sings that no it's it's um it's our it's house. it's steven stills or Graham nash one of those people I'm not, that's right that's Graham not. nash yeah, yeah, yeah Graham nash and Joni mitchell was was in the house as well right uh yeah. And their cat, you know, I mean they're there it's it's a similar a similar sentiment in some way. But here is the thing, like he he immediately kind of breaks the fourth wall on this song, you know. Yeah. He, he he names his actual he he you know names his actual wife, Sylvia. That's right.
0: Sylvia and I got out a Ouija board to dial the spirit across the room it's soared and amazed at what we saw Blazing stood the proud and regal name Delmore Delmore, I missed all
1: your And his actual mentor, uh, or friend and teacher, uh, Delmore Schwartz Delmore, exactly, who was literally haunting their home.
2: <laughs> uh, he references, in when he, met, when he mentioned Sylvia for the first time, it's uh, referencing the time they got out their Ouija board. Uh, to dial a spirit across the room, it soared. We were happy and amazed at what we saw blazing. Stood the proud and regal name, Delmore. Apparently, according to him, interviews at the time, this literally happened. That There was actually, like, he heard footsteps upstairs in the house and doors closed closing and breezes blowing by him and whispers in the wind. And he believed legitimately that it was Delmore Schwartz living with him and his wife in New Jersey.
3: Delmore Schwartz is, uh, you know, I, I I don't know tons, but um, I know that there's that um, Saul Bellow novel Humboldt's gift, which is also about Delmore Schwartz. Really? So he, yeah, he, and and that run, that won a, Pul- a Pulitzer prize, I believe. Um it's a. it was a pretty big book and all I'm saying is that guy, that guy really like made his impact <laughs> on, on some people, on the people around him. Um, it seemed like he he really, uh, he really connected with people.
2: That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, damn, there it is. The character Von Humboldt Fleischer uh, is sort of a stand-in for him in this Sal Bellow novel. I got to read that at some point.
1: It's really good.
2: <laughs> the, the Saul Bellow novel?
1: Yeah, it's really good.
2: All right, I'll but add it to the list.
1: I've got, In Dreams Begin Responsibilities and Other Stories by one Delmore Schwartz with a preface by Lou Reed. Um, And maybe I could uh, read a little bit from it. Oh, Delmore, how I miss you. You inspired me to write. You were the greatest man I ever met. You could capture the deepest emotions in the simplest language. Your titles were more than enough to raise the muse of fire on my neck. You were a genius doomed. The Mad Stories. Oh, Delmore, I was so young. I believed so much. We gathered around you as you read Finnegan's Wake, so hilarious but impenetrable without you. You said there were few things better than to devote one's life to Joyce. You'd annotated every word in the novels you kept from the library. Every word. It goes on like that. I mean, it's, it feels like the song. Yeah, it, it feels, feels like a continuation. Like a, Real companion piece to this Right down to
2: the Joyce reference, because he's got a line in my house, uh, uh, my Daedalus to your bloom, referencing not Finnegan's Wake, but Ulysses, Leopold Bloom and Stephen Daedalus. Uh, So clearly, you know, uh, and I think that must have been written you know, not too long ago at this point, certainly years after uh, uh, My House was written. So clearly, like, this set of experiences and influences, like, imprinted very, very deeply on the man uh, to the point that, you know, he's starting this record off with this uh, ode, really. There's no other way to put it. Um, It's kind of a wild... And I I can't really think of many other um, uh, songs, certainly in his career, and if not others' careers as well, just, like, that are this um, kind of specific about, like, this kind of influence on their life, you know.
3: I was thinking about sequencing this record. Yeah, it doesn't come out swinging in a, in a sonic way. No, in some way, doesn't. you know what I mean? No, it, it just kind of opens. It's like 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 it's sort of a, a
1: a a a bold and maybe strange choice. Very much so. It's a good point. I mean, that the way that we you can't ignore the way it sounds. And I mean, for my money, just laying my cards on the table, I think it's my favorite produced. It's my favorite sounding blue Reed record, probably. Um, I think it's a, a record I, I just hold in general is like really high for the clarity of it and like the, the dynamics that it achieves. Without a lot of fuss, there's not a lot of fussy shit. It's just really great playing and great players.
3: It's, I mean, I think that's the thing, and that's sort of part of the what I was saying about a type of record that I think maybe I, I had a theory that that this was a, he invented a type of record, but then I couldn't think of examples. But if this was part of it. It was like to get real, you know, with the really good players, which he always had. But like, and then you know, it's pure takes. It's there's no there's no musical yeah. overdubs and there seems to be a real value on, on the playing and kind of it's loose, but it's pristine, as you say. And um, it's really impressive in its sonics.
1: Yeah. One record, the only other record I can think of that I really feel the same way about and could be described the same way is probably Marky moon, honestly, because of the way that it's just those things, it's just clear and it's great. And it's all about these performance moments and there's not any effects really. It's just about the what you have being presented. You can hear it
3: everyone in the room, right?
2: I mean you you're sort of aware of mm -hmm. who's in the room. Very much so, yeah. And it's just four guys. It's Lou, it's Fernando Saunders on the bass Mm -hmm. and backing vocals, uh uh Duan Perry or Dwayne Perry uh on drums and the man, the myth, the legend, the one that we gotta talk about. Robert Quine on the other guitar, who uh just lends an absolutely uh uh beautiful signature striking kind of sound uh to this record and I think really uh for the first time in Lou's career since honestly since the the dissolution or dissolution of his relationship with John at the uh, you know middle of the velvets, maybe with Bowie stepping in you know um uh, as the producer uh for Transformer, which Lou chafed against very quickly. He's finally got like a really kind of um, strong collaborator at this point with Quine. Quine is this enormous presence for Lou who absolutely kills it on this record to the point that their relationship ends up falling apart almost immediately, uh, mostly, you know, due to Lou um, and his, uh, you know, uh, ego, basically, for lack of a better term. Um, because by after Legendary Hearts, which comes out the next year, Quine is out out of the band. He's barely even on Legendary Hearts. You know, Lou mixes him down so far in the mix that he's barely there. Um, but uh, you know, this record I think is such a extraordinary, like right place, right time, right guys kind of collision that only really happens once, um, or could only happen once. Um, but you know, the product uh, uh, is a testament to itself.
3: Do we? Do one thing. Uh, to- Do we know anything about the actual physical location of this house? Because it feels like, it also feels like maybe he got out of the city. It is Um, out of
2: the city. It's in New Jersey. Uh, And apparently there is actually like a little lake by it. I forget the exact kind of burb that it's by, but it is legit, just like kind of a suburb in the middle of New Jersey, probably not too far away from where the Sopranos lived. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, that's—I uh, mean—that's a huge part of it—is getting out of the city and getting clean, also, which was sort of the influence yeah. of Sylvia. Um, you know, he had really—I um, think—during growing up in public, he had kicked the speed. He was just drinking at that point.
0: The pow 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 power of positive drinking. And
2: then by now, he was completely on the wagon, um, and you know, had cut a lot of the old folks out of his life, and uh, was really in a content kind of uh, a satisfied place in his, uh, in his world that allowed him to make a record like this and obviously reflects in the lyrics. Uh, It's a very turning 40 kind of record. He is turning 40 as this record comes out, which, you know, you can, you can kind of hear it in the grooves.
3: Sure. You know, women, you know, if we're moving on, there seems to be, uh, um, you know, I love women. There, There seems to be like inherent in that, maybe an apology for how he's treated people in the past yeah um and and certainly maybe you know certainly a uh a shedding of the rock and roll animal you know <laughs> a persona like like and um it reminded me a little bit of of um when I mean, when the like in the late '80s, early '90s, when the Beastie Boys had the press conference and they right. said, "Like, we are not disrespecting women anymore. We're not about <laughs> guns. We're not going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. We're not going to sing about that. We're not going to rap about that." There seems to be a very public, like, uh, I mean, it, just in the statement, um, "I love women." It seems to say, like, "I think they're great. I appreciate women, and I want ma- to make the world know that." <laughs>
0: To a world in a terrible state. They're a blessing to the eyes, a balm to the soul. What a nightmare to have no women in
1: the world. There's a lovable uh clumsiness to the way that he does it yeah. with I Love Women. I think that's timer yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> we all agree with we all love women, he goes on to say. And it's uh, you know, it it, it feels a little silly, but like also it feels Genuine. I think the song feels tr- like it doesn't come across as hackneyed.
2: It's so it's like so nakedly straightforward that like you almost feel like when I first heard this song however long ago, I thought like there's got to be something more here. Like there's got to be some like, I'm missing something or there's a joke or an in in gag that I'm not aware of. But like it it, it isn't. He's just he literally is just saying, I love women. We all love women. We think they're great. Um, It's also, I think, a very conscious effort on his part to, uh, like you were saying, Craig, shed the rock and roll animal kind of persona, and all of the, um, you know, uh, um, uh, alternative uh, sort of sexualities and labels that had been applied to him uh, throughout the 70s. Obviously, his uh, time, you know, at places like the Anvil in New York, in the gay scene, his time dating Rachel... Um, he's very conscious and clear at this point about trying to present himself as an average guy, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, but uh, you know, I, I think there is a very clear and um, uh, unstated, perhaps, but uh, motivated kind of um, uh, motive, uh, to, to use the same word again, uh, on his part at this point in time to say, like, past that's done I'm done with that shit this is a new guy a new world and this is what I'm about now inherent in that I think I I feel like
3: there's maybe a little bit of a uh implied thank you to Sylvia for helping him get clean sure. and um
1: yeah the part where he says about talks about the magazines <laughs> I knew it was sexist but I was in my teens he's like don't don't get it twisted I I'm aware and I'm I'm doing better I'm being better yeah um, my official stance I'd, re- I'd like to really make this clear I agree with everything in the song um, uh, <laughs> deeply
2: you'd like a you'd like a choir I, of castratis to serenade your love is what you're saying I'm against genital mutilation but otherwise I can get down with uh, all of this that lose after in this song
1: look if they were already mutilated I really <laughs> okay. just want them to make the most of that I want them to you know put get I guess jobs. we don't want to take
2: away their opportunities that's fair
3: I you know throughout the record there's there's these moments that are so simple that they feel really brave artistically to me like like you know like you're it's like the equivalent of standing naked on a diving board you know you're like (laughs) you're just out there and and the thing about this song rings really true to me because it is at times so clumsy right that 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 it's not it's not overly clever at any point it's just really laying it out there and I think it's kind of it's striking in that and, 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 it, and it's clumsiness sometimes but yeah
0: I love-
1: Think that's something that runs through this whole record is a sense of vulnerability that um we'll see later. You know, he's not someone who is um he's not afraid to write a song about being afraid, he's not afraid to write a song about being um in peril himself, and that's right there, you know, that that thing lets him do that is also the thing that lets him make a simple song that has no twist Mm -hmm. to it like this.
2: Musically, it's also just beautiful, completely kind of like languid and um, uh, uh, relaxed and nocturnal sounding. Uh, This is like one of the most beautiful kind of instrumentals on the record, I think. Uh, And going back to the sound of the band, uh, this is such a marked kind of um, contrast from Growing Up in Public, where we last left him, which I did a little bit of reading uh, in the time since we last spoke about that. Uh, this record was the first one post Michael uh who had been basically directing all the music in the band for growing up in public um, and had been a producer on Lou's team for all of the 70s basically. And at this point, like he's out for good. Um, and Lou, you know put uh, put these guys together on his own. So that shift, that really marked, clear kind of um, uh, jump forward, quantum leap forward really from the last record to this record, Uh, is entirely based on, you know, where he was at and the players that he surrounded himself with. Um, And, I mean, this song is, it just kills me every time. Um, Yeah. Speaking of getting clean, Underneath the Bottle.
1: the last time we heard him talking about alcohol just a song dedicated to it was the pu- 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 power of positive drinking and then we're going to have underneath the bottle and pretty soon after this record we're going to have the uh, like final battle of that with like bottoming out
2: Yeah, it's kind of the the uh, alcoholism trilogy from uh, yeah <laughs> it's like the whole the whole journey
1: but this is the first song on the record that i think has some uh, areas where i i, I don't necessarily have everything i don't know what to say about it all the time i think think? to to me there's
3: it's weird because there's there's a there's a little bit of playfulness in it i mean it's a heavy it's a heavy topic obviously especially for someone who's you know in recovery at this point and um meaning him but but then all of a sudden there's that son of a bee that that, 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 that <laughs> makes me laugh every time i hear it's it so and that's good. like and uh it's it's you know and it, i started to sort of kind of get a, it it gives it a little of a wacky tone like that like like maybe he's a little drunk or maybe he's um taking the character yeah. of someone who's had a couple you know i yeah. keep think i kept thinking of like a prop like a big bottle like a like a <laughs> like a big bottle that he's fallen down the stairs and it's on top of him like a big inflatable cuervo bottle or something <laughs> you know um that-
2: like a jug of moonshine with the 3x's on <laughs> yeah. it he's got a barrel on <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah it it does have a little bit of that theatricality that you get on growing up in public um it's but it feels like he's a little past it now because he's he's like maybe laughing at himself for a little bit um like ooh we look at me looking for some sympathy it's the same old story of a man in his search for glory and he found it there underneath the bottom well,
2: one thing that's really notable on this record and notable throughout his career but i think is, is a clear kind of you know, thing to wrestle with on uh, Blue Mask is, like, when he is writing as Lou Reed and when he isn't. Um, And, you know, the first two songs—the first song, clearly, that is Lou Reed speaking directly to the camera, and women presumably mostly is. But here, I think, is the first instance, and this comes back a couple more times throughout the record, where, like, it's not exactly clear, you know, is this Lou Reed? Is this a character? Is it some combination of both of them— um, and Lou, to his part, you know, is, is always kind of slippery about those things, whether or not he's writing exclusively from his own personal, you know, kind of experience or that of someone else. Um, and this one, I think, is is kind of somewhere in that in-between land, is not necessarily Lou Reed as he was in 1982 when this record came out, but could have been an alternate version of Lou Reed in the future or, you know, was a Lou Reed five years earlier or something like that. Um, and, th- and I think some of the humor... And the like he literally says ah shucks in this song. <laughs> yeah. <and laughs> like, son of a bee and ah yeah, shucks. That those... comes from like his own kind of familiarity um and uh sort of um uh self-deprecating kind of sense of humor, I think.
1: Ooh, we
0: liquor set me free. I can't do no work. The shakes inside me. Ah shucks. I've got the lousiest luck. I'm sick of this underneath the bottle.
3: Um, I, I didn't think of this until just now when we were talking, but, you know, if, if if he is recently sober, you know, there's some chance, I you know, I don't know, that he was going to meetings. And I, I mm. do think that there is, you know, things mm. uh, at a meeting. Um, There are, you know, people standing up and telling their stories, sometimes self-depreciatingly, you know? And, and, and there there is an element to the song that I think kind of might, you know, who who's to say but sort of does remind me of that you know totally. like like the, you know
1: yeah that that thing of like well it's my turn <laughs> yeah okay oh yeah. shucks yeah uh, yeah and you
3: think i you think i could do that you think i did that without you know you think i walked right by the liquor store hell no <laughs> you know
2: yeah uh just the the concept of the guy who delivered Street Hassle, like literally the monologue of Street hassle, the second part of Street hassle, and like the <laughs> lyrics and words contained therein, and then here he's saying aw shucks and son of a bee i i I love that so much
1: he also says uh you know i got uh seven days make a week on two of them, I sleep, I can't remember what the heck I was doing <laughs> i got I got a bruise on my leg from I can't remember when uh he's a uh, kind of the guy who made that record—I mean, by all accounts, during that period, he was blackout, drunk, high on amphetamines, up for days or down for days—and um, and
2: presumably using slightly more colorful language than Asha. Ah sure, but and son of a B. <laughs> at, at
1: this point, it seems like yeah, he's you know kind of for the first time able to um, comment on the past.
2: Yeah, have some sense of perspective on what he went through. Like
1: he can actually even be sarcastic and a little bit loose with it without it being so precious.
2: What One of my theories
3: on this record a little bit that I'm playing with is that, that you know, thinking about him going out to Jersey, it, he's kind of there there's a little bit of a norm core. Oh, like, oh thing yeah, happening. Totally. like, like he's saying, like, I'm not a rock and roll animal. I'm an, you know, we'll get to average guy, but <laughs> I'm a normal guy. I say stuff like shucks. And, you know, you can see him like dressing differently and trying to like fit in at the barbecue with the guy, you know, the guy down the street. Um, And to me, there is something about like, I don't need to be a rock and roll animal. I have a a wife I really love. I have this nice house now and we're just going to sit around and do seances and like, you know, and and I put all that behind me.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just great to see, uh, you know, uh, our our boy Lou, our man Lou uh, reaching this level in his life, you know, speaking as someone who is, you know. Uh, charted his development obsessively for the last six months you know uh, his development having you know lasted 15 years at this point in our examination it's just uh, it's a really kind of exciting part of the story I think that we're getting to here Um, and uh, that's the great thing about doing something like this and just like you know taking stock of someone every step along the way is just like Look how far he has come from where he was fucking ten years earlier. Yeah. it just you know this kind of journey I think is just not even really feasible in today's world anymore um you know for any
1: number of reasons um I'm drinking uh, by the way Lou the Lou special at the moment what, uh, what is, what is that? Scotch? It's Johnny Walker red there you go. and a beer okay. <laughs>
2: I hope you have a gun on the oh, table, gosh. Okay. You know? No, no, no.
0: The <laughs> man has a gun. He knows how to use it. Nine millimeter Browning. Let's see what it could do. you will point it at your mouth. Says that he'll blow your brains out. Don't you mess with me. Carrying a gun, carrying a gun, carrying a gun. Don't you mess with me. I'm carrying
1: a gun, carrying a gun. This song is, I I think it's one of his best songs. This one's wild. And man. It's a, you,
2: you crazy for this one, Lou. It's
1: this, is a song that I think like is one of his first real, like, I don't know. I think it's a major achievement as far as literary rock songwriting right here, not to diminish the others, but as like a short story of a song, this one is kind of um, unparalleled um, so far with what he's done because he's done things that are, you know, he's been really verbose with something like, um, street hassle, but the gun achieves kind of that last, that section of street hassle, like the really harrowing monologue section. And it's just a song that kind of exists in that place. Um, three minutes, 41 seconds. Uh, what a horrible song. (laughs)
2: in uh, in the best way possible i would assume yeah
1: it's like stomach turning i i had to look up
3: cuz i um when i was listening to today it struck me that it was, it reminded me of the bernie gets uh, subway shooting uh from the 80s and i was like oh is it was it this and i looked up and that actually happened in 1984 so this mm. predated it but it seemed like that kind of um it seemed. It seemed related. I mean, maybe it's just. It's something. It was a primal urge that um, that was, you know, that he was tapping into. A, a, sure. it, it that was happening in the city at that point. Um, yeah. But but it is. Yeah. I mean, it's a tremendously angry and 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 convincing, um, convincingly terrifying song.
1: It's. It has. I think if we're going to talk about Fernando Saunders a little bit, I he's someone who's going to stay with. Lou Reed as a musical collaborator for years, decades of this. Um, and he's really kind of, to me, like definitively Lou's bassist. He's such an integral part of his sound.
2: The Tony Garnier of Lou Reed's yeah. uh, uh, collaborators.
1: And here he really shines because he's just as lyrical with like, the, this little bass line that comes in is like um, so atmospheric. So it's He's really sensitive, a really sensitive musician um and is able to like do what's right for the song uh, so well so often so I just want to shout him out here and then the song itself is like you know if we were talking about the first song being so autobiographical um this is not this is this is <laughs> presumably not th- uh, It's it better not be <laughs> Apparently there
2: was an initial version of this song with much more explicit, like, clear lyrics about exactly what was happening, and I think Quine wanted Lou to use that version of the song, but Lou, you know, maybe for the first time in his life, uh, (laughs) listened to some moderating influences and decided to go with this version of it. I don't know that the, uh, the original version or set of lyrics has ever seen the light of day, but, uh... You know, I, th- I think that uh, the less is more approach yeah. that he takes here is, is exactly the right way to do it because yeah. you get everything you need to just based on the cadence, the delivery, the way he pronounces some of these words. Like when he says, I, um, I wouldn't want you to miss a second. Tell the lady to lie down.
0: I want uh, you to be sure to see this. I wouldn't want you to miss a second.
2: It says, uh, yeah. it's just like that, that says everything you need to about the guy who's delivering these lines um it's it's really an incredible kind of character study uh in like you said i mean just like three and a half minutes it's wild
1: it's tragic and it, it's also pop it's i'm looking at the track list here i don't know why maybe was it used in a movie or something it's got like Four million something plays if It's
2: got way more streams. It's gotta be in like a Netflix show or something. That's what it always is.
1: I, I wonder what that is. It's like by far the most popular on the record.
3: That's do we, weird. Do we know where this was recorded? I mean, do you guys, I
2: should say? Um it was recorded uh at RCA Studios in New York City in October 1991 Trying to,
3: I what well, it, it's hard not for me not to think about like what it looked like seeing. I like, you know, I sort of feel like the lighting was lighting uh, moody yeah. and, um, and some of the instruments were, um, new, you know what I mean? Like, like, it yeah. seemed like Lou, Lou was, you know, not afraid to, 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 uh, you and his band, you to use non. You know, not
2: not just vintage instruments, et cetera. Totally, um, yeah. The the back cover, I think, is literally the guitar that he used on this record. It's just a picture of the guitar in black space, and he even has a liner or a note in the liner notes that says, "My guitar." wait, This is great. My guitar is the one on the right stereo channel. Lou is the right channel. Quine is the left throughout the whole record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the guitar was built by the Guitar Man. So apparently, this was a fucking custom built guitar for this record.
1: Is it clear or black? It's a little hard to tell it's
2: it looks it
1: looks
3: like that yeah I mean just thinking about what I was reading about you know that he the, the, the band heard some demos but they were kind of coming in and you know he's trying to capturing them with early takes and you know to think about gun the gun that one and and you know just the musical performances on that alone or just you know to get to get the band there somewhat quickly is pretty impressive
2: insane. Yeah, this is almost, kind of, I mean, thinking about it now, I mean, this is honestly like a, a proto-Bob kind of approach to recording, you know, Latter-Day Bob, where, like, you know, Love and Theft era, he just gets the players in the room, no overdubs. Lou made a lot of points about, like, if there's fuck-ups on this record, like if someone flubs a note or something, that's just in the record, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, um, that approach obviously has served Bob so well over the last uh, couple decades. I love just kind of thinking about the way those two things... uh two things to Rhyme, it's a very hardcore kind of way to go about making a record
1: yeah well when you got the confidence in the people that you've, you're playing with i guess like he has rightfully here it really feels like they are just all of a, of a mind about what is happening in each song and this is a yep. really clear moment of that where it feels like cuz cuz the song itself sounds you know you'd think maybe a song with what the topic that we just described it could be like really trying to sound ugly and harsh but it's not it's like a really kind of understated and um spare arrangement Mm -hmm. that just kind of uh I think like super effectively puts across uh you know the banality of of petty evil crime of just like the thing about it that I think is so genius lyrically and just the way it comes across like I'm carrying a gun. I got a gun. And he's basically just saying like, all it takes is for you to have a gun and then you can do anything. You can fucking, you can destroy anything. You can do anything to anyone. And it's the simplest thing in the world. And the song sounding so simple, I think is like a perfect um, Mm -hmm. vehicle for that.
2: Sure. Thematic uh, echo. Um, 9 millimeter Browning, let's see what it can do. Man, these lines, wild. Um, well, First Side closes out with, uh, speaking wild, uh, as cool and calm and collected and understated as the gun might be, uh, title track, The Blue Mask, is uh, the exact opposite in uh, the best way imaginable. <laughs> This is where I think this band really kind of gets to cut loose and just fucking go for it for the first time on this record. And uh, maybe one of the most brutal uh, and just hardcore sets of lyrics that Lou has ever written, the way he delivers them reinforces that this is just i mean man this song fucking kicks ass i don't know what else to say
1: it's biblically violent it's greek tragedy <laughs> violent it's like <laughs> literally it literally is. Uh, this song is i think i don't know uh, one of the five top five most intense rock song performances of this all this is time. a rock
2: song to end all rock songs baby <laughs>
0: They tied his arms behind his back To teach him how to swim They put blood in his coffee And milk in a you. They stood over the soldier In the midst of the swallow. There was war in his body And it caused his brain to holler Make the sacrifice Mutilate my face If you need someone to kill Are in the rain.
3: In me free. Are me. I did the, the last line, cut the stallion in his mouth and stuff it in his mouth.
1: That's <laughs> like, uh,
3: right there, right there.
1: <laughs> Every single line on this ups the ante, and it's not, it and it starts with the. They. What's the first line? Is tied his, they arm tied tied behind his arms behind his
2: back to teach him how to swim. They put blood in his coffee and milk in his gin.
1: And it only gets more harrowing from there. Like listening to this song feels like just cold sweat. It's it's absolutely terrifying. I think it's maybe my fa- like this is one of the best songs he ever did. I think it's no one of the the greatest achievements of his whole career. And I think if you didn't get Lulu. I was
2: just going to say, totally
1: telegraphs where he fucking goes on Lulu. It's right here. He goes further on this song, arguably, than he does on Lulu. And if you were someone who shat on that record, it's like, you clearly just don't even know this.
3: I mean, the band, the band is, gets, you know, really intense here. And there's, there's like, I was like a Led Zeppelin, um, even like a, Chains addiction kind of like like sure. tribal kind of thing happening <laughs> that that is really I mean it, you're right, it's just harrowing and it's it's mm-hmm. I think it's it's definitely in my top at the very top of my Lou Reed, you know in in Sad. the catalog
2: no question and sequencing wise I think putting this rec putting this song at the end of this first side, which has been so like kind of chill you know, for lack of a better term, musically speaking, at least, My House, Women, The Gun, you know, it, say what you will about the lyrical subject matter, but, like, mm-hmm. musically speaking, those are all such, like, nocturnal, languid kind of song, sounds. And then this just comes out of the blue like a bolt of lightning and just, like, you might have been sitting there on your couch nodding off with the music earlier, and this is just like, you know, you fucking bolt, sit right up, and yeah. it's, <laughs> your eyes are... Just peeled, locked peeled open. open. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. it's like that. Uh, that advertisement where the guy's sitting in the chair with the stereo blowing <laughs> back at him. There's the jet turbine, like his tie flying behind his face. Like this is the song that's being. Played yeah, but this that. is
1: the jet turbine is like actually shooting fire, just out incinerating <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah,
2: exactly, melting the flesh from your skin.
1: It's such a, a fucking uh, like. Yeah, I, I'm every time I listen to it, I, I'm my eyes are wide, and then they get wider and wider, and but there's no point to. There's not even a breath of error, like here, it just keeps getting more and more um, insane. The
3: interesting thing, one of the interesting things to me is I always think like as a songwriter um, or someone who makes albums, your title is titling something is a way to kind of shut a spotlight. So if you you write, you title it, you know, the, what is the chorus, the, the words you say the most, that's kind of what you're highlighting. But sometimes you title it something that's not that to shine the spotlight somewhere else. And, you know, when he goes to, even though this record, as we say, I was saying it's kind of a norm core record. It shows contentment. He's sober. But when he goes to title the album itself, he
1: puts, he shines the spotlight on this this song. Yeah. Yeah, A song that he apparently um, was reticent to play for a long time. Like, I don't even know, to give you a little runway of the lyrics that lead up to it. I made love to my mother, killed my father and my brother. What am I to do? When a sin goes too far, it's like a runaway car. It cannot be controlled. Spit upon his face and scream, there's no Oedipus today. There's n- This is no play you're thinking you are in. What will you say? Take the blue mask down from my face and look me in the eye. I get a thrill from punishment. I've always been that way. <laughs> Not uh, like even a like even when you're in the song or you're reading it, it it's not um, just reading those aloud. There's no yeah. chill way to read that. It's insane. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and the way he delivers those lines in the song on top of it, like it's, it's, uh, it, there's such a degree of like propulsion and momentum that picks up throughout the whole thing. Uh, you know, by the end of it, he's just like, you know, he's taking flight. But yeah, I, I think you're totally right, Craig. Like calling the record The Blue Mask, this is the song The Blue Mask, and then using the Transformer cover mm-hmm. and remaking that into this blue mask that is now being taken down from his face to reveal, on the one hand, you know blissful marital you know uh, contentment and then on the other hand just this brutally violent but at the same time beautifully literate should be noted i mean this is a really beautiful kind of poem words on the page wise um you know this is uh like he he's really kind of coming into himself i think finally uh in every kind of uh, every kind of um uh, facet of his life and it's just it's inspiring to see there's no other way to say it yeah i mean i
3: think it feels like you can make you can make so
2: much peace in your life,
3: right? Like Hmm. you can, you can, you can apologize to the women, you can beat the booze, you can have the house out in Jersey, but like still in there somewhere is, you know, behind the blue mask. That's, that's the guy, (laughs) this guy.
2: Yeah. Uh, The guy, yeah. The guy who has a wife.
1: Wife well, guy, I, this is this is about a little bit more than <laughs> yeah. uh, having a wife. <laughs> this is the <laughs> wife is your mom, and you're about to kill each other. <laughs> oh, God, you're about to uh, careen <laughs> off a cliff in uh, 10 BC, and you have just taken your eyes out with a rock and uh, <laughs> wash the razor
2: in the rain. Let me luxuriate in pain. pain. Please don't set me free. Death, Death means, means a lot, a lot to, to
1: me. me. <laughs> Man, this guy. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely. Fu- I mean, I I, I don't even. I feel like the more I talk about it, the the less I... Um, it's I, a visceral experience, you know? I, I, I think you're
3: right. And I think, like, when I think about this song and I think about attempts to equal its heaviness, um, no matter who the artist is or what, it, it, it's hard to get this heavy without getting cartoony, you know, right. cartoonish. And, um, you mm-hmm. know, this seems as, as actually psychologically as harrowing as as anything i can think of on a record
2: totally and i think he earns the heaviness too like think about street hassle which has so many ugly kind of heavy songs dirt shooting star um uh, that that just kind of stack up on one another across the record to say nothing of the title track obviously but you're just at a certain point it starts to like lose you know a little Mm. bit of its 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 impact because it's the same note again and again uh, but this one, because he has walked such a narrow kind of line throughout the first side of the record, and only now halfway through it uh, does he take the blue mask down from his face. Um, you know, I, I think the the dramatic effect of that is is uh, stunning, striking, and a testament to how to fucking sequence a record. Like that is the perfect kind of place to put this. <laughs> And that'll do it for Side A of The Blue Mask, Lou Reed's 1982 masterpiece, with our label mate, net buddy, pod friend, all-around great guy, rock and roll musician extraordinaire, Craig Finn. His podcast on TalkHouse is back for a second season, it should be noted. That's How I Remember It, a podcast that examines the connection between memory and creativity. The debut episode just dropped last week, featuring Craig's discussion with noted author George Saunders. A fantastic chat and really exciting way to kick off a whole new journey on that end of things. And you probably don't even need me to mention it, but The Hold Steady... Have a new record. The Price of Progress out March thirty first, twenty twenty three. Just a little while down the line here. The first single Sideways Skull already available. That's a real classic Hold Steady rock song. You gotta love it. Uh and tour dates. Forthcoming at some point, presumably. I think they've got a couple shows booked over in the UK and around Chicago uh, for a couple months down the line. But uh, I'm sure it won't be too long until they bring their wonderful American rock and roll to a venue near you. Join us next time when we flip the record and cover side B of Lou Reed's The Blue Mask with our friend Craig Finn, only on Jokerman.
0: Make the sacrifice Take it all the way